You are listening to the Literary Comedy Podcast. Stories of comedy, tragedy, and time. Welcome to Chapter 16 of A Dragon for George, a somewhat friendly novel about a 12-year-old boy and a genetically engineered dragon. Last time, George and his parents reconciled while the damsel provided George with Corwin's diary. And now, Chapter 16 of A Dragon for George. George understood the diary easily enough, but Corwin had written a lot of passages in very small letters. It was very tedious to sift through. He could really use an index by the sound of things, said Thud. What's an index? said George, thumbing through the diary. A list of words and where to find them, said Thud. Here's a list, George said excitedly. Chivalric duties to abide by. He flipped through several pages. It goes on for a long time. He flipped through several more pages. A really long time. An index would be alphabetical and include page numbers that lead you to passages elsewhere in the book, Thud said. The list of chivalric duties definitely wasn't that. There's nothing in there that might be useful for escape, asked Deidre. I haven't found anything about the dungeons, said George. It doesn't need to be about the dungeons to be useful, said Deidre. All sorts of things can be useful. All sorts is a lot of sorts, said George. Could you narrow it down? No said Deidre. You'll know it when you see it. I see lots of things, but I don't know, said George. I do know everything on this chivalry list, however. Maximy talked about this sort of stuff. Corwin doesn't exactly abide by it. There's about a dozen rules against betraying a lady. He lied to you, hit you, and sent you into a dungeon. I know he calls you a sorceress and an enchantress, but you're not. You're a lady. I prefer thief to lady, said Deidre, but I take your point. That's the problem with rules. Wormy worms always worm their way out of them when it's convenient. Although, to be honest, I don't mind them lying to me. I'm a liar too, truth be told. George nodded, remembering the number of times he'd lied. Although, he thought, he only lied when he thought it would be helpful for others. That should count for something. George flipped to the most recent entry in the diary, reading it aloud. Richard of the Glen hath warned me yond reptilian issue must rest eyes upon its master before any other, and shouldst it go several risings and settings with another, then their bond should be great and mayhaps unbreakable. Ergo, though I shalt set myself upon breaking this bond in hopes of forming my own, I am at long last resigned to the knowledge that these efforts may prove fruitless. Shouldst the fruit of my love thus prove withered and rotten, Richard hath assured me that they hath already conjured a replacement. But, and it doth pain me to put this to parchment, and yet I go on, the original must die. Too dangerous for this world without a wise and virtuous master, such as I, to shepherd it to righteous action. Shouldst this prove assured, I shall mourn thee, leaf and precious dragon. I shall cry out, O ye fates, what have ye wrought? You lost me at yon reptilian issue, said Deidre. What does it all mean? said Hork. It means I have to rescue her, George said. They're going to kill Lorne if she doesn't bond with Corwin, but she won't bond with him because she's already bonded with me. I have to save her right now. But even if you saved her, said Jack, what could you do then? We don't have room to house a fire-breathing dragon, said George's mum. I wish we did. People don't want fire-breathing dragons in their neighborhood, said George's dad. Or where do they go hiking, said Hork. 
The authorities wouldn't allow it, said Hank. She's doomed no matter what, said Thud. She's a lost cause. We can't let you risk your life for a lost cause, said George's mum. So I can risk it if it wasn't for a lost cause, said George. I didn't say that, said his mum. We're sorry, said George's dad. We know the dragon means a lot to you. There has to be a way, said George. But he knew there didn't have to be a way. Life wasn't always fair. But darn it, he wanted to make it a little fairer for Lorne. We need to think of a place where they'll never find her. George thought and thought. The storm drains wouldn't work. Corwin already knew about them, and there was no grass down there for her to eat. Lorne would be easy to spot in a field. She might burn down a forest. George could think of some really good places for her, except these places weren't real, which wasn't good. They were from books and myths. The Isles of Avalon, George said. If only we could find a place like that. I don't know of any Avalons, said Deidre. But I do know a place called Shipwreck Island which might work. I've heard of that, said George's dad. There are so many shoals and jagged rocks that no one's ever managed to land there. I'm one of the no-ones, said Deidre. I tried to hide out there once after I stole this guy's yacht, but had to give up. The island's awful anyway. It's mostly just crags and caves with windswept grass on the top. That's perfect for a dragon, said George. That's what I was getting at, yes, said Deidre. Shh, said Jack. Someone's coming. George heard it now, the clanking steps of armor hitting stone. A door creaked open. The steps grew louder and louder. Where is it? said Corwin. Thou hast taken it from me. I don't know what you're talking about, Deidre said. But of course she knew that Corwin was talking about the diary. I shall search thy cell, said Corwin. I'm going to the bathroom, said Deidre. Come back later. Fie, George heard the rattling of keys. Thou dost lie. I shall enter. And you call yourself chivalrous, said George. You do not know how to treat a lady. Indeed, I am but a mere lady, Deidre said. Surely you, gracious Corwin, are not suggesting that a mere lady has managed to fool a strong and intelligent, normal-sized-handed man such as yourself, taking whatever it is you accuse me of taking. Thou art no lady, said Corwin. Thou art a sorceress and a temptress and an enchantress. George could hear him clanking around Deidre's cell. Thou shalt return it to me post-haste, said Corwin. Return what? said Deidre. And who are you calling a post-haste? Thou dost know of which I speak, said Corwin. You've searched my cell, said Deidre. I've let out all my pockets. Whatever you're looking for obviously isn't here. Fie! shouted Corwin, clanking out of Deidre's cell, slamming the door and locking it. The boy must have it then. I'm going to the bathroom, George said as Corwin rattled the keys. That lie didst not work for thy neighbor, said Corwin. Why dost thou think it shalt work for thee? I really am going to the bathroom, though, George shouted toward Deidre's cell, hoping that she knew what he meant. He reached as far as he could into the toilet hole, the book in hand. Sure enough, he saw her hand reaching for it. The door opened. Startled, George dropped the book, which made a disgusting squish as it hit the waist below. What was that? said Corwin, rattling into the cell. The man's legs were armored, but he wore a tunic for a shirt. What do you think? said George, pretending to zip up his jeans. Fie, said Corwin, grabbing George by the throat. Fie, 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 
The door to the dungeons creaked open. The square-jawed horseman called out, "'Richard Glenn is here to see you, sir.' "'How many times must I tell thee?' asked Corwin, turning toward the man. "'Speak properly!' "'Richard of the Glen hath arrived to attend to thee, sire.' "'That's better,' said Corwin. "'I mean, that be much preferable.' "'He hath brought,' continued the square-jawed horseman, "'a new reptilian, er, egg, yond needs replaceth, yond disobedient creature, yond he shall taketh off thine hands.' "'They're going to kill Lorne!' George thought, his heart shaking. He wanted to attack Corwin that instant, but he could barely breathe, let alone get a good swing in. George needed a bright idea. Yes, said Corwin. I shall attend to Richard of the Glen post-haste. Stop calling people that, said Deidre. It's not nice. Corwin threw George to the ground and clanked out of his cell. Wait, croaked George, rubbing his injured throat. I shalt complete thine inquisition later, said Corwin. But, George started, hoping a bright idea would pop into his mind. Lorne's life depended on it. I entreat thee, George spoke slowly, buying time. Thou hast condemned me to these ragged prison walls without merit. Thou didst rob me of my dragon, said Corwin, closing the cell door. "'Tis merit enough. I knew not that this reptilian issue was thine, said George. I'm the one that stole your egg, said Deidre. Thou art guilty, thou misshapen clotpole, Corwin shouted into George's cell, of working with the enchantress. I'm not an enchantress, said Deidre. And if I were, I wouldn't work with kids. Liar, shouted Corwin. My guilt be not yet determined, said George. Yes, George thought. This is it. This is the bright idea. He said, By heaven, King Arthur, and the codes of chivalry by which every true knight must abide, I do demand a trial by combat. Trial by combat, said Hank. You mean we can fight that nincompoop for our freedom? I demand a trial by combat. Me too, said Jack. We all demand trials by combat, said George's mum. Twas he who first did ask, said Corwin. And by the codes of chivalry, tis he who must fight for all of thee. Oh dear, said George's mum. But they all must attend as witnesses, said George, for their freedom be at stake. Yes, yes, said Corwin. Sirrah. Yes, my lord, said the square-jawed horseman. Put all prisoners in bondage and prepare the combat pit for... Corwin took a dramatic pause. A trial by combat! Corwin clanked up the stairs, talking to himself. At long last, I get to partake in a trial by combat. This should be delightful. The square-jawed horseman shackled George's wrists and ankles, attaching him to a long chain. The horseman then went to cell after cell, shackling the rest of the prisoners to the same chain. Jack, at the end of the chain, whispered something to Hank, who whispered something to Thud, who whispered something to Hork, who whispered it to George's dad, who whispered it to George's mom, who whispered it to Deidre, who whispered it to George. He's hidden the electric bridle in his pants. George looked back to Jack, 
who smiled, winking at him. George nodded. She doubted this would be of much use in the combat. Lorne would probably be caged, given the way she'd reacted to Corwin. But the combat wasn't George's only concern. Up, up, and up they climbed a stone staircase. Its steps smooth and dipping at the middle, dipping just low enough for the prisoners to step onto with their shackled ankles. Torches lit their way for what must have been a half hour. But eventually, they came into a grand hall with thirty-foot-tall windows with giant torches and imposing tapestries. Weapons, carvings, and suits of armor lined the walls. In the middle of the room was a semicircle of wooden seats, each of them carved with fantastical creatures. Dragons, unicorns, griffins, and wyverns. In front of the seating was a circular fighting space. Behind that was Corwin, talking to several grown-ups. I'm a very busy man, said one of the grown-ups, distinguished by his perfectly trimmed beard and shining white teeth. I am thine customer said Corwin. If thou dost wish thine recompense, thou shouldst have patience, O Richard of the Glen. The customer is always right, Richard said to himself. And thou shouldst never forget it. Corwin slapped Richard of the Glen on the shoulder. Fret not, this shalt be brief. As the prisoners shuffled across the room, George saw Lorne, so big now that she nearly filled her cage. She wagged her tail and flicked her tongue in George's direction. She clicked happily. I'm here, girl, he said. I've missed you. I'll get you out of there. Dost thou forget, O dragon, said Corwin, how he spake, trust me, and then thou wert captured? You're the one that captured her, said George in a rage. Lorne hissed at George. She turned from him in a huff, which quickly turned into a dangerously long burp. Glad that wasn't flames, George thought. Richard Glenn looked at all of George's shackled friends and family. Did you forget our discussion about imprisoning the locals? He said to Corwin. You might not be able to settle out of court this time. Pish, posh, and flim flummery, said Corwin, unsheathing his sword. This shalt be settled via combat. The square-jawed horseman unlocked George's shackles before leading the rest of the chain gang to their seats. You're going to fight a child, said Richard. That's your solution. He didst request it, said Corwin. Now sit thyself down ere I set my hounds upon thee. The customer is always right, Richard said, sighing. (laughs) Richard and his associates, including two exceptionally tall women, an exceptionally short woman with a ponytail and a muscular mountain of a man, all took their seats as far away from the combat pit as they could. George noticed that the woman with the ponytail held a large chartreuse egg, which she placed in a nest in front of her, blocking it with her legs. This is not a safe place for the egg, she said. Corwin insisted that it witnessed the battle, said Richard. Corwin warmed up, swinging his large broadsword. He attacked one of the suits of armor, quickly finding gaps, hitting its visor, its armpits, its elbows, and its knees. If someone had been wearing that armor... That someone would have been crippled, if not killed. The man is crazy, George thought, but he sure does know how to wield a sword. The square-jawed horseman thrust a small and rusted sword into George's hand. Um, said George, looking from his sword to Corwin's shiny number. Tis a poor swordsman who doth question his sword, said Corwin. Would you prefer this, 
said the square-jawed horseman, pushing a broadsword into George's hand, the hand with the torn-off skin. George screamed from the pain but did not let go. This sword clanged to the ground all the same, pulling George down too. It was heavier than him. I'll go with the rusted one, George said, licking his wound. And a shield. A shield would hurt to hold, but it could save his life. No shields, Corwin said as the square-jawed horseman helped him into a chest plate. Tis not specified in the codes of chivalry. Doth not seemeth fair, George said, watching the square-jawed horseman fit Corwin's arm with a pauldron, vambrace, and gauntlet. If our lord deemeth thee innocent, thou needst not worry, said Corwin, putting on his helmet and taking his place at the center of the fighting area. Who's worried? said George, looking up at a man who, though lanky and small-handed, was obviously skilled and quite strong. The square-jawed horseman told Corwin and George they must fight with valiance and honor. Don't do this, George, said George's father. It's too dangerous. We'll get out of this some other way. If thou dost back out now, said Corwin, thou wouldst be admitting thy transgressions, and I shouldst have no choice but to execute the lot of thee. Oh, said George's father, maybe not. Use your assets, said Deidre. I have assets, said George. Well said Deidre, thinking. You're smaller than he is. Let us dispatch with the battle anon, said Corwin. The battle doth begin, said the square-jawed horseman. Before George could ready himself, Corwin swung his sword down toward George's skull. This'll be a pretty cool way to die, at least, thought George. Thank you for listening to Chapter 16 of A Dragon for George. Tune in next time to find out the brutal unfairness of trials by combat. Until then, bless you, keep you, and take good care.